Gracious God, we ask that you would speak to us today, that you would be with us today, that you would help us to hear and see and be changed by you even today. Lord, as we turn to your scriptures, we ask that you would speak. Give us ears to hear. We pray these things in Jesus' strong name. Amen. I read that according to the TV news, a man named Roy Wettstein uh, found himself a treasure. Roy was a rock collector, and he was on his way to buy some rocks. He was on his way to a rock show. Apparently, there's shows of rocks. Um, but his two sons gave him each $5 to buy them a rock at this rock show. Rock, the, the hard kind, not the music kind. Um, so he goes to this rock show, and he finds this potato-sized rock in a Tupperware container with a lot of agates, uh, which are kind of quartz-like rocks with cool patterns on them. Uh, and, and the sign said, $15 for any one of these stones. He picks up the potato-sized rock and says, you want $15 for this? And the man says, you know what, I'll give it to you for 10 because it's not as pretty as all the other rocks in that little Tupperware container. Roy bought it, got a receipt, and he could hardly contain himself until he got outside because he had just purchased the largest known star sapphire, 1,509 carats, uncut, so it wasn't pretty yet. It was only worth like $2.5 million then. If you cut it right, it'd be worth about $10 million back then. Imagine finding something like that. Imagine how you would feel. Imagine your joy. It's the premise of a whole bunch of different TV shows, antique road show, that old piece of trash in your grandma's cabinet is worth $500,000. It's the premise of the shows about buying old storage lockers and looking for treasures, bargain hunters, salvage hunters. There's a lot of hunting involved here uh, where you buy just a whole bunch of junk, but you're hoping for something of value. Uh, I'll get it on the, uh, on the, uh, the internet every once in a while, an advertisement saying, do you own this baseball card? Do you own this penny? You could have thousands. Just click here. It's why some people go to antique stores. Some, I think, go for other reasons, but some go to antique stores trying to see, can I find something that has much more value than the dollar price tag that it has? Can I recognize value where no one else can. The idea here is always the same. What if we found something, maybe even that in your attic, that was worth more than you ever thought possible? But then again, what if you've already found that? I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me back up and remind us where we are. If you recall from last week, this summer we're looking at the parables of Jesus because Jesus used parables primarily to teach His disciples how to become more like Him. Uh, that doesn't mean, though, that these stories were easy to understand or apply because even back then they were hard to understand, which is why a lot of times Jesus will share a parable and the disciples will come up to Him afterward and say, yeah, we, didn't, we don't know what you're talking about. And then he would have to explain what the parable was about. Of course, to make matters more difficult, they're even harder to understand today because we have become overly familiar with a lot of them. 
And therefore, we assume we already know everything there is to know that they could possibly be trying to tell us. And so what was designed to have an impact on us has instead become something that we have already learned. And therefore, we can dismiss it as something basic, trivial, or trite. Which is why, for many of us, when we read a parable in the Bible, we conclude that we already know what it says. We already know what it means. We've already applied it to our lives, and so now we don't have to listen anymore. Because there's no way for this parable to do any more work inside of us. Actually, let me back up even further. Eventually, this sermon's going to go forward. Not yet. We're still backing up. Uh, because we probably should also make sure we're even on the same page about what a parable is. Uh, a parable is a particular kind of short story told for a purpose that invites you in to the story. I, I love what Eugene Peterson says about parables. This brief, commonplace, unpretentious story is thrown into a conversation and lands at our feet compelling notice. A parable is literally something thrown alongside of. That's what the word actually means. Para is alongside, bole is thrown. To which our first response should be, what is that doing there? And that's the challenge. These seem to be stories that Jesus just drops along the road, giving us the choice. We can pick it up and enter into the story, or we can just walk on by. But in this, it's important that we recognize that these are different from a lot of other stories that we tell. They're different from illustrations. As I said last week, I will often start a sermon with an illustration to, to start us thinking or to bring us together, or maybe, if I have a point, to start moving us toward a point. Or I'll use an illustration later in a sermon to, to punctuate something, to drive something forward, or to add some levity a little bit of sugar to help the medicine go down. But the reality is a sermon stands on its own without the illustrations. Parables are not illustrations. They're different. They are the point. They carry more weight. They invite us to enter in and then wrestle with them. And Jesus seems to ask us to hear them and sit with them and respond to them. In other words, Jesus is using these stories as tools to try and change people. And therefore, we need to be asking different questions. How did Jesus seek to change us through these stories? And so we begin today with Matthew chapter 13, verse 31. This takes place right after Matthew's version of the parable of the sower. That was the one we talked about last week, the Mark's version. The parable of the sower, a man plants seeds, and they fall on different grounds. And if you remember from last week, and, then the, and they grow differently, and then the story ends. There's no reference to God. This could be about anything until Jesus explains it later. But the point was, do you have ears to hear? Do you respond to what is planted? This then picks up a little after that in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 13, 31. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. 
Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. We're going to stop there and fast forward all the way to verse 44. For brevity, we're skipping the parable of the weeds because no one likes weeds. Uh, We may come back to that in a few weeks, but for now we're going to fast forward to verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Amen. All right, Jesus is mixing some metaphors here, proclaiming perplexing parables, if you like alliteration. Uh, We've got mustard seeds and yeast and treasures and pearls, all very unique, all a little bit similar, and all of these seem to come in pairs. What's more, each of these parables reveals something to us about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. I know we've been talking a lot about this for a while now, but it's still worth reviewing. A big part of Jesus' message was that the kingdom of God had come, which means we're not only, not really even, talking about heaven. Instead, we're talking about something uniquely present and yet not quite here, something that is now and it's later, something that has come and is still coming. Of course, when we talk about kingdoms, we're talking about an area where someone's will is done, normally the king or the queen. Uh, But it's not totally about royalty, because the reality is each of us have a little bit of space where we have a little bit of control. I have some control over a small amount of area in my life. I have some margin of control over what happens in our house, in my relationships, in my life. In those areas, my will sometimes is done. That's my kingdom. The problem, of course, is sometimes other people's kingdoms run into my kingdom. And that's when you find disagreement and discomfort and discord. When, when, when my will and your will come into conflict, then then that creates a problem. Of course, if you just do what I want, which is always the right thing to do, then my kingdom expands a little bit. My kingdom came a little bit larger now because you are now doing what I would like you to do. My kingdom has grown. Of course, later you're going to change your mind and then my kingdom's going to shrink back, but, but, but that's how kingdoms work. This Right now, I have some control over this part of the stage provided it doesn't fall. That's my kingdom. That'll change. But as Christians, we actually want something different. We actually believe that our kingdom isn't actually the best kingdom. It's not the best for us. 
It's not the best for others. It's not the best for our world. In fact, it might be bad for my kingdom to come. That may not be a good thing for anyone, ironically, especially for me. And so instead, as Christians, we want and seek and pray for God's kingdom to come. We want His will done on earth and in our communities and in our relationships and in our lives. We think His kingdom is actually going to be better for everyone than each and every one of our individual kingdoms. What's more, as we choose to do His will, we actually are bringing a little bit more of His kingdom come. Which is why when Jesus came, this different kingdom had come, since it was personified and exemplified and embodied in Jesus. Jesus' life was different because He lived in God's kingdom, saw God's kingdom, brought God's kingdom by His faithfulness. And He invites us into this different kingdom reality as well. But of course, that's hard to see and even harder to understand which also may be why he was trying to explain it through these parables, through these stories. Because God's kingdom wasn't coming the way that everyone was expecting it to come. You see, the normal way for a kingdom to come is for a greater kingdom to develop a greater strength, normally militarily, sometimes economically, and then it just kind of overcomes the former, now lesser kingdom. That's how kingdoms come. Uh, and this is what we first expect when we hear that the kingdom of God is coming. God's going to send His, His angels. He's going to raise up a huge army. He's going to do some smiting or judgment. And He will overwhelm this present kingdom and establish His own kingdom. That's sort of what we expect. That, that's sort of what the people of Jesus' day were waiting for. And it's sort of what we sometimes hope for, as long as we're the ones on the winning side. As long as we're on God's side, then what we want is for Him to just conquer all those people out there in, in kind of a big way. The people of Jesus' day were wanting for God to, to come and, and give it to the Romans and, and everyone else for that matter. Establish His kingdom, our kingdom. But that's not how God was bringing His kingdom. And that messed with people. Because that's what we know. We know how kingdoms come. They conquer. And Jesus seemed to be saying, actually, that's, that's, you're, that's not how it's working this time. You see, it's like this. God's planting a seed. It's, it's like this. God's, he's got this yeast, and he's, he's kneading it into the dough. It's like the, he's, he's hiding a treasure. He's placing a pearl. In other words, instead of power, God is planting potential. Instead of worldly value, God is pointing us to something even better. And in this, God is bringing a kingdom unlike any we would expect, but the one we still long for all the same. Which brings us all the way back to our passage and to our parables. We read four short parables about the kingdom. And so I want us to work back through those because I love how they're all sort of saying the same thing and they're all saying something different. I want us to pay attention 
to the power of the seed, the presence of the yeast, the prize of the treasure, and the pursuit of the pearl. So much fun when the alliteration works all the way through. The power of the seed, the presence of the yeast, the prize of the treasure, and, and the pursuit of the pearl. And we'll go by pairs because they kind of go together. Uh, we begin with the mustard seed and the yeast. Both of these involve small things becoming big. Hidden potential. Both contain a hint of the unexpected. A little tiny seed becomes a fruitful tree. A little bit of yeast becomes, well, it takes, takes about 100 pounds of dough and turns it into bread. In each of these, this is what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is something that is growing and working and coming, even though it starts out rather small, sort of unexpected. But just wait. Something amazing and wholly unexpected is coming. What's more, in both of these parables, the something has already begun. It's already happened. Even if the work of that something is still coming to fruition, it will have a powerful effect. It is irresistibly moving. It can seem like it's here, if you know where to look. But it hasn't, hasn't come to its fullness yet. It hasn't grown all the way yet. It hasn't developed fully. That said, these two very similar parables are also different. The mustard seed is very small, one of the smaller seeds, and yet it becomes one of the largest plants in your garden, a tree, really, that can create shelter and support. Part of Jesus' point is that there's a power in the potential of a seed and in the kingdom, which should change the way we look at our world. I don't know about you, but so often when I look around at the world, I always see what's wrong. I always find ways to focus on what's bad, what's not the way it's supposed to be. And, and it's easy to then conclude nothing can make that better. Jesus seems to be saying, you're looking at the wrong place. Because God has planted this seed, this, this kingdom seed. And it's germinating, it's taking root, it's beginning to grow, and it will develop and blossom and fruit into a whole new reality. Jesus' ministry is what this kingdom looks like in small, but just wait. You see, mustard seed thinking is that a faithful little can go a life-changingly long way. Mustard seed thinking is hopeful, and it's confident. Mustard seed thinking realizes that God is on the move. The kingdom has been planted, and it's growing, and it's developing, and it's expanding. Which also reminds us that even the littlest of kingdom faithfulnesses are important. The parable of the yeast is similar but different. Jesus tells us of a, a woman, a baker, really, who, who takes 60 pounds of flour, however much water you would have to add to that. But there's nothing there yet. Flour and water don't do anything until you add a little bit of yeast. And again, we see this oversized result from this small act of faithfulness because yeast will spread 
everywhere through the dough. And it will continue to grow and expand throughout. It will transform this plain lump into something much better. But notice this parable is about more than just the potential power. It's also about the pervasive presence, which again should change how we, how we see and think about the kingdom. You see, yeast thinking reminds us that that same power is also present and working in so many places, so many more places than we would ever at first expect. It reminds us that God is not only at work at church or in Christians, though surely He is, but it also means that God is also present in your homes, that God is also present at your work, that God is also present in your relationships, that God is also present in your interactions. God is on the move wherever you might be and wherever you might go. Just like the yeast, it's at work everywhere throughout the dough. Now, it's still small, but it will still have this oversized effect because it's not just in one place, it's everywhere. It's all over. It's anywhere. It's in everything, which then should change how we see our world because the kingdom of God has saturated and is saturating the world. It's ubiquitous which should change then how we see it. Which brings us to the second of two parables, the hidden treasure and the pearl. In both of these parables, someone comes across something of immense value, which is hidden from them at first, but when they see it, they recognize it, they pursue it with everything they have. They sell everything so that they can obtain the object of their desires. Now, sometimes we hear that, and we think about how hard, we focus on the wrong part. We think about how hard it would be to sell all we have to get this other thing. Like, well, wait a second. I mean, okay, I mean, maybe, I could, I mean, there's a little bit of money I have that I could put forward to this, and, and I guess we, we could sell the house, but I mean, uh, we focus on the how we have to give part. And in that, we are completely missing the point that Jesus is trying to give because it means we aren't realizing the value of what has been found. Neither of these finders are having any difficulty getting rid of all they have. Neither of them are struggling with the decision. Neither of them are, are, are holding on to their former stuff because of how much more value they see in the treasure and the pearl. If anything, they are giddy in anticipation for what they see has more value. You're walking along a piece of property that's for sale for some unknown reason in this hypothetical story. Your foot bumps a small, large, medium-sized wooden box that's kind of buried. Clearly, it has been there for a long, long, long time, longer than the previous couple of owners of the property. And when you open it, you find priceless pieces of artwork, original shares of some very expensive stocks right now, and gold and jewels and all the rest. You're not a thief, so you don't take anything. That would be wrong. But you close the box, and you make sure no one else is going to find it. And then when you go to the person to buy the land, 
because of what you found, you are willing to pay any price so that you can have this treasure. Because this treasure is worth more than anything else you have. Even if the price of the land is expensive, it wouldn't be for you because you found something more valuable. You aren't sad because of what you're losing. You are ecstatic for what you are getting. Now, looking deeper, we see that these two parables are also a little bit different. Remember, we're talking about the kingdom of God here. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like this priceless treasure. It is something so valuable that it should reshape all of your hopes and your dreams and your desires and your strivings. It should fill you with joy. The fact that we are obtaining something of more value than we ever thought possible should, should fill us with profound elation. Because, of course, we have found something, a treasure really, that's worth more. The kingdom of God is worth more which then changes how we, how we think and, and who we are. You see, hidden treasure thinking reminds us that maybe we've been valuing the wrong things. Maybe we're seeking after the wrong things. Maybe we're desiring the wrong things. Maybe we've been settling for chasing after the wrong things. Sure, 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 I, I think I want this and that and the other thing, but maybe what I really want comes not from what I hope to buy or get or gain, but really comes from God. Hidden treasure thinking reminds us that maybe we're seeing and focusing on the best of things that aren't as good as they could be. Because the real value often starts hidden, which means we have to be on the lookout for the kingdom. Which then brings us to the last one, the parable of the pearl. This parable takes a different tact. Because unlike the hidden treasure our guy happens to stumble upon, in this parable the merchant is actively looking for a pearl of great value. They're working for this, seeking this, pursuing this. This is taking effort, endurance, as they pursue this pearl. And therefore it's helpful for us to recognize that the finding wasn't accidental. What's more, I've always liked this particular parable because Jesus flips the direction of it, if you're watching carefully. In the first, the kingdom is like a treasure, teaching us that there's a value in the kingdom. In this second one, Jesus actually says the kingdom is not like the pearl. It's like a merchant looking for a pearl. He switches it. In other words, there's something about the kingdom that's like a treasure. There's a value to it. But then there's also something about the kingdom that's like a merchant looking for treasures. There's something about the kingdom that pursues and chases us. In some ways, we are the pearl that the kingdom of God desires. In some ways, the kingdom of God values us which changes us. See, pearl thinking reminds us that the kingdom is in pursuit of us, as we also in turn are in pursuit 
of it. Pearl thinking reminds us that God loves us and desires us and pursues us. Pearl thinking reminds us that you were created in the image of God. Pearl thinking reminds us that you have inordinate value to the kingdom. And pearl thinking reminds us that that's not just true of you, but it's true of everyone else as well. Four little stories packed full of power and presence, pointing us toward a different price and pursuit. But you have to see it. We have to recognize that God is doing something in and around us. He's planted a seed. He's spread out some yeast. He's, He's buried a treasure. He's put a pearl out there. And as we learn to recognize and even live in this kingdom, everything changes. Let's pray. Lord God, we we struggle with this idea of the kingdom because our world seems so strong, so big, the problems are so pervasive. The challenges are so big, and, and the desires that, that we see all around us that we, that we want seem so good. It seems like we'd, we'd get everything we would ever want if we only had this, that, or the other thing. And yet, Lord, you, you tell us about this kingdom, a place where your will is done here on earth like it is in heaven, and we want more of that. Lord, that means we have to give up a little bit of our current kingdom, the kingdom of me, so that we can have a little bit more of your kingdom come. And so we pray that you would help us. We pray that you would help us become more like Jesus and that we would continue your work of bringing your kingdom come. We pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.